This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Guys, the ransomware situation has gone beyond mere fuel. It's gone beyond beef. It's gone beyond. It's No, it's not yet beyond beef, but it has made it to beef. It's really hitting America where it hurts now. Maybe now we can get some serious attention to cybersecurity. I will say that I am very well prepared for this global beef panic because I buy my steaks ahead of time. I have a freezer full of ribeyes and New York strips, which I enjoy every Friday night. <laughs> You're ready for the apocalypse? Absolutely. You're not coming for my steaks, ransomware people. I will but I have a, sell these I have a to question. You Is your refrigerator or freezer part of the Internet of Things? Do, have we met? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely because, not. <laughs> because I just want to say the Russians are coming for your freezer, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your damn hands off my steaks, Vladimir. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Where's the Beef edition. I'm Shane Harris. I think we have clearly established the beef is in my freezer. All the beef. All the beef. All the beef. I, lo- I love steak. I'm just going to tell you. that's It's one of my favorite foods. Yeah, but what percentage of a cow is there in your freezer, Shane? Oh, I mean, a, a, a small portion of a small cow. I mean, it's only like five steaks right now and some ground beef. So I've thought about that buy a cow thing before. So you only really have like three weeks between you and Joe of readiness. I mean, if the ransomware beef showdown goes on for long enough, even you are going to be like out of beef. Out of beef. Yeah, you may have found the the vulnerability in my strategy here. Yeah. Well, we will have to blow off that beef when we come to it. I am here in the virtual jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Madiha Afsal, who is a David Rubenstein fellow at the Brookings Institution. We only what? love the Brookings Institution here. <laughs> and the author of Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism, Society, and the State. Hi, everybody. Hey, Shane. Hey. Hi. And welcome to the podcast. It's so nice of you to join us. Thank you. You have a very nice virtual studio behind you, Madiha. It looks very nice. Thank you. It's like some nice sunlight coming in. It's like, you know, it's good stuff. I, I hear him in my soundproof cave, which, you know. Your star-spangled cave. It has its own appeal. It has its own kind of charm. That's true. On the podcast this week, violence escalates in Afghanistan as U.S. troops withdraw. President Biden directs intelligence agencies to look for more evidence that a lab leak may have started the COVID pandemic. And a ransomware attack targets the world's largest processor of the beef. All right, let's start with Afghanistan. We are seeing reports out of Afghanistan about increasing violence as the U.S. troop withdrawal, which we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, continues apace. There was a very interesting story in the New York Times as well of a few days ago about security forces, Afghan security forces, surrendering to the Taliban. 
there is a bit of a, this is what we were afraid of, kind of maybe a bit of we warned you uh, that is coming to pass here. Uh, Mediha, you have a great article op-ed from Tuesday in the Washington Post. I will just read a portion of it here for our readers. Uh, you write, it appears that President Biden's announced withdrawal from Afghanistan is proceeding ahead of schedule with all U.S. troops set to depart by mid-July and NATO and allied forces keeping to that schedule as well. But if the president wants to tie a neat bow on U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, saying as he has that the logic for the war ended once al-Qaeda was gutted and Osama bin Laden was killed, it reveals a stunning lack of introspection about the United States' role in the conflict that will continue in Afghanistan. So talk to us a bit about that. And, and what, what do you mean by this lack of introspection that you see from the administration? Sure. Thanks for having me on to, to discuss this. You know, I, I think we're all caught up uh, still in uh, the president's announcement of the withdrawal. And I, you know, there are strong views in Washington on, on that. You know, there are people on both sides and it's not an easy decision that he had to make. And I acknowledge that up front. But what disturbs me now is sort of the narrative that has been presented along with that withdrawal. I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a very linear, very simple kind of narrative. And, and it is that basically we went to Afghanistan to defeat al-Qaeda after 9-11 and that mission creep basically led us to stay on for as long as we did. And we stayed on too long. It's time to get out. We should have left long ago. We should have left, you know, after Osama bin Laden was killed, not in Afghanistan, by the way, in, in, in Pakistan. But and, and I argue that basically this ignores the U.S. agency in the war in Afghanistan. You know, this sort of implies, look, the war in Afghanistan is this more than 40 year conflict, the civil conflict, and it will, it, you know, it preceded us and it will continue after we leave. But it ignores the fact that when we went to Afghanistan in 2001 and overthrew the Taliban, who were already in power at that point in time and sort of engaged in a very draconian rule, we installed a new government, we started a new phase of this conflict. And that is that sort of the, the conflict that will continue after we leave. And by basically saying, uh, look, you know, our job is done, we're leaving, we're ignoring the fact that we had a role to play in the conflict that is, is going to continue in Afghanistan and that we are already seeing escalating as we are leaving, right? So, you know, just in early May, more than 90 people died in an attack outside a school in, in Kabul. And, you know, it barely created any... Um, sort of reaction in the United States, which is which is depressing. It's sort of uh, you know the idea that you know this is not our problem anymore, but but it is. And you know I talk about I talk about history, and I'm I'm happy to talk about that more. But in in the region in Afghanistan and Pakistan and beyond after the Soviet withdrawal, and you know how sort of America kind of left the region post 1989 in terms of sort of the arms and the money it had sort of poured into the region. The repercussions of that, you know, American withdrawal at that point, you know, not not of troops, but of this covert presence were really, really felt. And that really became part of a narrative that uh, the region talks about, about American abandonment post-1989 and the ripple effects of that. So we will, I think we're deluding ourselves if we think that we can walk away and that what happens in Afghanistan will sort of stay there and will not affect us. So Mariha, when you talk about this, one of the things that comes to my mind, and tell me if, I, if I'm 
off on this analogies. I think about Colin Powell and the, the so-called Powell doctrine of, you know, you break it, you bought it. And this is famously the advice that he gave when counseling whether, I guess, you know, the, the issue of invasion of Iraq, right, is that if we go into a country and, you know, through, as you put it, our own agency, we upset the security dynamic there, we have a responsibility to put it right. I mean, is that the way to think about this? That, you know, we went in with one objective, which was toppling the Taliban, but then we sort of transformed the country in the process. And now we're, we're walking away from it. Sure. I mean, I, I think th- that's definitely part of it. I mean, I, I think the the president's narrative sort of does away with the responsibility the U.S. has entirely. And I argue, my argument is that there is definitely more of a responsibility than the, the you know, than Biden is saying. Um, whether it's a complete sense of responsibility, right? Like whether, you know, we need to, we, we don't need to take Afghanistan to a conclusion of, you know, it's a, it's a fully functional country that's a democracy with women's rights and, 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 you know, human rights the way we want them and so on. That, that's not quite it. But certainly the, the, the narrative that posits that, you know, our responsibility there is over is, is, one that's mistaken. You know, an intermediate step was, you know, we could have left, and this is something I've been arguing for months, we could have left after having some sort of peace deal between the Taliban and Kabul. Uh, and that would have been an intermediate step that would have worked fine, I think. And we would have fulfilled our responsibility. But we didn't. And now we're sort of the the narrative that we're putting forth is is sort of a dangerous one because Americans, many Americans sort of buy it, I think, and, and, and sense that, you know, we've done what we needed to do and we could not do anything more to move Afghanistan towards a, a better outcome when I think we could have. So, uh, Madiha, I think that's a really interesting point. And, you know, when you raise that with folks who are supportive of this withdrawal, they basically say, well, you know, we have no faith in the ability of this current Afghan government to come to a deal with the Taliban. And so we can't hold ourselves hostage to that. I haven't necessarily heard that on the record from the administration, but it's certainly what I hear from some folks in think tank land. And what that suggests to me is that the decision to withdraw in this way without a negotiation between the Taliban and the Afghan government that we helped set up, that we support, that we give money to, that we have bolstered with our own forces. It is, in essence, a declaration of non-confidence in that very Afghan government. Um, so we are walking away from them in a very real sense. That's that's thing one. Thing two, though, I mean, as you say, there's there's a moral argument to be made here about American responsibility. There are practical arguments to be made about the risk that the United States may be taking on down the road by leaving Afghanistan in this unsettled situation. But there is also a political risk that perhaps Biden himself may not pay, but some future American political leader may pay in that, you know, American troops are withdrawing. He is sending the message to the country that we're done with Afghanistan, but we're not done. And the United States is going to continue dealing with things like, for example, 
all of the Afghans who worked with American forces and are going to be assassinated by the Taliban in the coming weeks and months. And our special immigrant visa program isn't nearly up to the task of getting these folks out. And it, it isn't even open to all of the Afghans who worked with the United States government. We're going to still have embassy personnel there. They will sometimes come under attack. We're going to have U.S. development organizations there working with the embassy and with U.S. government money to support Afghan women. They're going to come under attack, right? So, you know, the American people may wake up to a New York Times headline a year from now, God forbid, talking about an American who died in an attack in Afghanistan. And they're going to look at President Biden and say, wait a minute, I thought we were done with Afghanistan. I think that's the political risk that the administration is taking with this kind of messaging as well. Sure, absolutely. And I think I think you, uh, Tamara, laid it out so so eloquently with with sort of the the various sort of, the, you know, the practical risk, the moral argument. And, and the first thing you talked about, you know, I think there is absolutely a reflection of frustration with the current Afghan government, you know, with Kabul. And, you know, the administration sort of showed that frustration with the the Blinken letter to Ashraf Ghani that, that sort of wanted to jumpstart the, the peace process that was before, you know, a few weeks before the actual announcement. So, you know, I think that's that's the cost that many of the the people who are in favor of the withdrawal decision point to the fact that nothing will change on the ground you know we're just basically going to the argument is if we don't withdraw now and if we don't withdraw completely then we're going to end up staying forever right and so in some ways i think you know now that the and 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 i will say that i agree that you know this was not an easy decision to make i think the way the president made the decision you know sort of throwing out an imperfect deal and in some ways walking into a, sort of an even riskier terrain by by going to an unconditional withdrawal, I think was really problematic. But my argument now is that it's sort of time to move beyond the fact that, you know, the decision and the decision has been made and really sort of think about the the narrative and how we talk about this because by talking about it so simplistically you're exactly right you know a year down the road a few years down the road you know Afghanistan will be in the picture you know it will be hard to look away and I think it's already um, as I mentioned it's already hard to look away as we are withdrawing you know even over this summer with for exa- example the Australian embassy saying you know it's uh, shutting down in in Kabul and and you know the news uh, from from Kabul sort of filtering in this is not going to be sort of an easy chapter to close and if we are upfront right now about it, and if we sort of talk about all the nuances, you know, the moral argument, the, the the practical argument, the political risk, you know, looking back, you know, what was our role, then it'll be an easier, in some ways, conversation down the road when when things perhaps go wrong in the region. As somebody who opposed this decision from the beginning, I'm hung up on how predictable this was. And it seems to me like it's a, with a lot of differences to account for by particular, particular circumstance, it's very similar in character to the 2011 Iraq withdrawal. And the fact that it's taking a 
much shorter period of time for the Taliban to regroup and start retaking territory in a, in a very aggressive way than it did for ISIS to do so is really just a difference in time. And I guess I, I, I am curious why you think that the right response to this isn't to rethink the decision that, you know, if we all believe, and I certainly do, that the government in Kabul cannot really survive without very active U.S. ongoing military support. And we all further agree that the retaking of Afghanistan by the Taliban would be a very bad thing, not just for the people of Afghanistan, but for lots of other people around the world. Why should we take it as a done deal that this withdrawal is going to be completed rather than saying, hey, this was a stupid idea when Donald Trump announced he was going to do it. It was an equally stupid idea when Joe Biden decided he was going to do it. And the right way to think about this is how to ensure the survivability of this government for the next bunch of years. I mean, that's an, that's an excellent question, right? And I think, you know, when... Michael Hanlon and I wrote a piece right after the decision, uh, the day after the decision was announced. And, and, we, and we said, you know, the president should find some way, the administration should find some way to walk this back, whether it's by a different name or, or, or you know, what have you. I think, though, that what we have seen in the last, you know, six or so weeks since the decision has been announced that, you know, there's, the, the, the president does not intend uh, or the, and the administration does not intend to walk this back. So in some ways, I think what's going to happen, because it seems that troops are going to be out by the middle of next month, uh, and that's not just U.S. troops, but also NATO forces, I think what may end up happening is that we may need to go back in, but it doesn't seem like that's a decision that the, this president is going to want to take. So in some ways, it's a done deal at this point, and that's that's why I wrote this piece, considering it a done deal, assuming it's a done deal, because that's how things have been proceeding, you know, what can we do better? And, and honestly, you know, some of this is what can we do better on the margins, right? What can we do better about the narratives? What can we do better about how we talk about this? And then how we talk about this and sort of realizing and acknowledging our responsibility in the matter and making decisions based on that in terms of sort of non-military kind of interventions, you know, how do we look at U.S. aid to Afghanistan? How do we think about, you know, our role in Pakistan, for instance? All those things sort of come with that. But at this point, given the last six weeks, I'm, I'm thinking sort of this phase of it is a done deal. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of a couple of things in light of your article, Madiha. One is, you know, Obama withdrew from Iraq in 2011 and thought that he could put it behind him. And developments on the ground and our concern for the stability of the Iraqi government and also the generation of a, a transnational terrorist threat in ISIS led us to put combat troops back in. And he had to do that himself. And he had to sort of take the, the hit to the extent that there was a hit. But it turned out that Americans were sufficiently afraid of ISIS that they were perfectly, I mean, if not comfortable, they were willing to support that about face. And that, I think, is, you know, is interesting to contemplate. What would it be 
that would allow Americans to be okay with, if necessary, uh, returning troops to Afghanistan. But the other thing that I'm thinking about is civil war. And, you know, you made the point in your piece that the civil war in Afghanistan is not something the United States created, but it is something that the United States sort of walked into and is now walking away from, and it's not over. And, you know, I that put me in mind of Syria, where the United States also intervened militarily in a much lighter way, obviously, to confront ISIS with this narrow aim. And, you know, can we walk away from that? That civil war isn't going anywhere. And what consequences is that going to have for the United States down the road? Yeah, I think, you know, so the interesting thing with with how we as a government, you know, and this is the Trump administration as well as the Biden administration have dealt with the Taliban is that we've dealt with them very differently, obviously, compared to ISIS. Right. So first, you know, there was a peace deal that was signed with the Taliban, not with not with Kabul, but with the Taliban uh, last year in February. And we agreed to things in that peace deal that we then had to force Kabul to to agree to as well. So, for instance, you know, prisoner releases, uh, and that took all summer last year. And I think through this this more than, you know, now sort of 15-month time period after the, the Doha deal, you know, there have been times where we've sort of openly let our, you know, disdain of uh, the Kabul government uh, show uh, and sort of the frustration with, uh, you know, Ashraf Ghani's government show. And and we've been sort of on the Taliban, actually, uh, the administrations, both administrations have sort of tiptoed around the fact that the Taliban haven't fulfilled their, their side of the peace deal, for instance, you know, cutting ties with Al-Qaeda and so on. I think U.S. lawmakers have been harder on, on the Taliban than both administrations have been, honestly. That's a very different relationship with, that we have with the Taliban than we had with ISIS, of course, you know, uh, where it was obviously directly confrontational. So much so that, the, you know, there's reporting that basically the Taliban essentially protected U.S. troops, you know, very clearly from ISIS. They did not let uh, ISIS uh, attack any any U.S. or, or NATO forces, uh, whereas, you know, they were attacking, of course, at the same time, Afghan civilians and, uh, the you know, Afghan security forces, of course. So I, I think there's a little bit of a whitewashing of the Taliban that has gone on. I think there's this hope that aid will, and, you know, sanctions will be sort of leverage that we can use to make the Taliban become more moderate, you know, sort of this kinder, gentler version of itself in the 1990s. But there's, again, increasing reporting from, you know, on the ground in Afghanistan that shows that where the Taliban have control, they are just as brutal, just as draconian, uh, and and sort of just the way they were in the 1990s. And that's something that we're going to have to confront. And in, in some ways, you know, we're kind of hoping and, you know, we know hope's not a strategy, but we're hoping for for something better to come of this. But perhaps if the Taliban show themselves to be just as brutal as ISIS, we will rethink, you know, what our hopes were and, and sort of rethink the, the decision that's been made. Mediha Afsal from the Brookings Institution, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about your great op-ed. Uh, and we will have you back as this situation unfolds. Thanks for having me. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, speaking of stories that we keep getting pulled back into, it's like, it's like Godfather 3. Oh, yeah. Just when you think they got out. The lab leak. We have to talk about the lab leak again, you guys. Last week, President Biden announced that he was ordering the intelligence community to redouble its efforts to determine the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, in addition to the question of, or including the question of, whether it may have been the result of a lab leak. Lab leak means things, different things to different people, but I think safe to say for the purposes of this discussion, um, what we're talking about is the coronavirus in some form, whether it having having been genetically created or perhaps brought into the lab in Wuhan, China, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, unbeknownst to lab staff, then somehow got out. Uh, it does not appear that the intelligence community or anyone even who was a proponent of the lab leak theory, certainly who I've talked to, takes seriously the idea that the Chinese deliberately released this as some kind of a bioweapon. That's sort of off the table. But this question persists about the lab leak. So President Biden came out and said some pretty, I thought, unusual things. One was that uh, not only was he directing the agencies to go back and look at this question, but then he said that there were two elements of the intelligence community that leaned towards the theory that this was a natural outbreak, uh, as previous viruses we've seen like SARS and MERS were. And then one element of the intelligence community leaned towards maybe it was a lab leak, but they each had low to moderate confidence in these assessments. Ben, it's very unusual for a president to publicly summarize where the intelligence community is on a major question with huge policy implications like this, then to spell out their disagreements, reveal their confidence rankings. Like we're usually only used to seeing these kinds of pieces of information when you have a finished national intelligence estimate that has been vetted and debated and scrubbed. And we finally hear about it later. This is the president kind of lifting the curtain in the middle of the story and showing what's going on from the intel community's point of view on this really controversial provocative question that has, you know, kind of come to divide scientists, certainly has divided Republicans and Democrats for a while, although Democrats now are getting on board maybe with investigating the theory more than they were before. So why did the president come out and do this? So it is very unusual. And I actually think it's great. I think what the president did is a model of the right way to handle a situation like this. He walks into an environment in which uh, the Chinese have clearly been hiding a lot, whatever the origins of the virus. The previous administration was 
all over the place with a combination of, you know, quite racist appeals and conspiracy theories. And by the way, may have been right about certain things. And nobody really has any idea what to believe. And a lot of people on the left and center responded to the previous administration by sort of dogmatically holding to the belief that there couldn't have been any human agency in this or human error in this. It had to be from purely natural causes. And so the right thing to do if you're the president in this situation is A, acknowledge doubt, B, acknowledge that the facts all don't seem to point in the same direction and that certain people are going to disagree, and C, ask the intelligence community to come up with a unified assessment of where things are and to report on it. That's what an intelligence community is for. And that's exactly what Biden did. And so I actually think, yes, it's unusual. I wish it were less unusual. This seems to me to be a great example of uh, how you can use uh, intelligence product and intelligence analysis to narrow the range of dispute. I also wonder, and <clears throat> maybe Tammy, you could take this question. This becomes a really useful way to put more and more pressure on China. Uh, you know, which I mean, whatever they're hiding, they're hiding something, right? I mean, they are not being fully transparent and open. Which is not to say that they're hiding the fact that they know there was a lab leak. They might just be hiding information that would speak to their own slow response or their own uh, kind of inept bureaucratic response to the initial stages of the pandemic. It seems like Biden coming out here and saying, look, you know, we don't they've already said we don't trust the Chinese in their cooperation with the WHO investigations on the origins of the pandemic. Now it kind of says, look, I'm willing to investigate the lab leak. And that puts even more pressure on China. Do you think that's right? And how would they respond to that? Um, I'm not sure it puts more pressure on China. I'm not sure the Chinese even know what they're hiding. I mean, in this kind of authoritarian <laughs> system, it's quite likely that mid-level or very, very local officials are hiding things from their higher ups. So it's the Chinese government might not even really know what happened on the ground. And of course, they're not going to want to reveal that they don't know and that they don't have absolute control over their system. So I wouldn't expect them to cooperate. You know, that said, I think it's it's a perfectly good move diplomatically, you know, in terms of uh, reputation burnishing for the United States government to say, hey, China, you know, if you have some evidence on the origins of this, why don't you just share it with us? Otherwise, we might think you're hiding something, right? Like, okay, so you get the moral high ground. But I actually think there's something else going on here and that this is a bit of an experiment by the Biden administration. I'm really curious to see how it works out. But, you know, they did walk into not just a confused situation, but a highly politically polarized set of two different worlds of understanding the origins of this virus based purely on partisan identity, not on facts. And so they're doing, you know, something that we talked about a lot on the podcast of how can the government rebuild trust in the Justice Department? How can it rebuild trust in the intelligence community? And I, I said repeatedly, they are going to need to show their work. So here's Biden coming out and being way more transparent than usual and saying, we're going to show you the work. 
intelligence agencies sometimes disagree about how to interpret facts. Here's an existing disagreement. I'm going to tell them to go back, gather more information, get their heads together. And that way, when they come forward with whatever their final assessment is, you can trust it more. So I think this is a really interesting attempt, and I really hope it works. I want to put one question on the table, too. And I think, I think Tammy, you make a great point about showing your work. And I mean, I think, Ben, you know, saying you'd like to see more of this, it probably would give people much more insight into how intelligence really works. I do wonder, though, and I, this is just basically main, main, mainly from my reading of the president's statements and a little bit of reporting I've done around this. I'm wondering if the way that he presented this makes too much out of the difference <clears throat> between these elements, as he put it, of the intelligence community. So when he says, you know, roughly speaking, two lean one way, one leans the other, that could make people think like, wow, there's a meaningful split within the intelligence community on whether it came from a lab, which sounds kind of like stunning. But when you look at it a little bit deeper and it says, and they each have low to moderate confidence on the way they lean, I mean, low to moderate confidence in Intel speak is basically a shrug. You would not right. like bet the mortgage on this. So I wonder if he risks making it seem like, oh, there's actually a very substantial disagreement about this question in the intelligence community. When in reality, it's like, we're not saying we disagree. We're just saying like, hey, it's kind of open for debate and we're not really sure what it means. That sounds different than there's a disagreement. I think low to moderate confidence in this context means the relevant agencies all concede that we don't know one leans one way, two lean another way, given that we don't know is the best way to understand that. Don't you don't you think? I, I think it's more like we we really have no clue. Here's here's a guess from some and here's a guess from That's the others. That's what I mean. Yeah, but like that's not e like they're not even putting any money on those guesses. Low to moderate confidence is like it's a, here's our guess. I mean, so I, in other words, Shane, to answer your question, I worry that it, it might create a bit of a perception of like, well, you can choose whom to believe because the intelligence agencies disagree. But I think the bottom line is he's saying to them, okay, you guys really don't know. So go back and do your homework and come back to me again. And, you know, rather than just leaving it entirely uncertain and unspoken to so that the conspiracy theorists can feed on it, he's he is, as I said, showing the work. Again, I don't know how much difference that's going to make in the end to whether the public accepts a more considered judgment from the intelligence community. But I do think it's worth a try. It's also interesting to me, and <clears throat> we've reported on this and the New York Times has as well, that... Well, at least one of the things that seems like it prompted Biden's decision here was he was told that there was a large amount of unexamined information that might speak to this question. One way you could read that is him saying, well, I feel like the previous administration didn't do enough to answer it, or they were too driven in one direction, which was trying to prove the lab leak. And I mean, and, and clearly, I mean, Secretary Pompeo was talking publicly about how the only intelligence I ever saw pointed to a lab leak. I don't think that's really accurate. But it also makes me wonder if at the end of this, if Biden's team comes back and says, yeah, it's inconclusive on this question, or actually, we think we can rule out the lab leak now. 
like in a way that's great for him because it sort of deflates the conspiracy theory. I mean, it won't for people who are true believers, but it's a way of him being able to say like, look, we actually did our homework and we came up with an actual better answer than the Trump administration did. So you can trust us more on these questions. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, my my gut instinct here is that in the absence of greater Chinese cooperation or in the absence of SIGINT intelligence from China in which they say, you know, we've got to keep the lab leak secret from the Americans, uh, we're probably not going to get a hard resolution of this question. What we could get is a better understanding of the parameters of the dispute. And I think that would be very helpful. Yeah, I think safe to say if there were a smoking gun that pointed to the lab leak, the previous president probably would have told us about it. Maybe. I mean, you know, yeah, SIGIN is always nice, but um, human intelligence takes time. And it's possible that given this tasking and more time than the Trump administration had, um, we can get human intelligence on this question. Yeah, yeah. And I should say, too, I don't by any means mean to suggest that the intelligence community in the previous administration didn't do a job of actually trying to answer the question. I think it's just also very clear that there were elements within the State Department and within the NSC that were driving very hard towards one theory, that being the lab leak theory, which may turn out to be true, but that you know, to speak broadly, like I don't think the intelligence community or, or that all officials in the Trump administration were you know, all operating in the same objective fashion. I think that there were different pursuits going on at the same time. Well, and if they, if they had put out a definitive judgment on this question, would anyone have believed them? That's the other question. Right. I mean, and, and you know, notably the Pompeo State Department on January 15th of last year, or this year, sorry, did put out this fact sheet, as they called it, talking about things like that there were sick workers at a lab at the lab in China, the Biden administration never disputed that information. It also it also went off the State Department website and got archived. But we should be remembering, too, that what seems to be triggering this latest spate of interest is the Wall Street Journal running a story that there were three lab workers at the lab in Wuhan who got sick enough to go to the hospital. That's like an advance on previously known information that I think was kind of being treated as revelatory, but it sort of thrust it back front and center and reminded us that, yeah, the previous administration did tell us this, just not in that level of detail. So it's not like these facts haven't been out there, you know, waiting for somebody to to try to make more sense of them. Let's talk about meat. Let's talk turkey about cows. <laughs> cows. <laughs> so much going on, you guys. As with the colonial pipeline breach, this is, again, stories that we keep coming back to. This is like this is like the same shit, different day edition. I think you should be able to ransom particular cows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know which cow you'd like to ransom. <laughs> I, I want to know why this syndicate that ransomed the meat company didn't demand payment in steak instead of Bitcoin. Yeah, right? Probably because you have to send the steak to an address. Yeah. yeah, I just think I just think, I think we should all be able to ransom individual cows. They should send you a picture of a cow and say, "This, this cow, is your cow. This is your cow." <laughs> and unless you send me like five Bitcoin, it's gonna, you know, be die. it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna die anyway. It's it, either gonna get turned into steak for me or steak for you. Well, so. 
let's let me briefly explain for people who don't know what the hell we're talking about. I'll move quietly in the background yeah. while Shane talks. Yeah, you, go, you go tweet with Devin Nunes as Cal. Uh, yeah. There was a ransomware attack on the world's largest meat processor. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> prompting renewed calls for government to make stricter cybersecurity protections uh, in particularly vital economic sectors, of which, you know, food is one of them. This was an attack against the Brazil-based JBS. Uh, reading here from my colleague Joe Marx's coverage, it has halted production at all the company's U.S. meat processing facilities and slaughterhouses across Australia, shutting down about one-fifth of U.S. beef production. JBS said expects to have sufficiently recovered to have most plants operational today, but the shutdown is still threatening a temporary surge in beef and pork prices. Why is, why is pork involved here? And roiling in an industry already battered by the coronavirus pandemic. Tammy, we, as I said, just talked about these ransomware attacks, but the one on the Colonial Pipeline that led to the company shutting down its pipeline, prompting major gas shortages. And here we are again. And I feel like, you know, every time this happens, you know, experts and officials and, you know, smart people like us come out here and say, we have to take critical infrastructure protection more seriously. And then another attack happens. So, like, we are clearly <laughs> there's something missing from this equation. If you know what it is, please share with us. But, like, do you share my frustration about this that, like, it's like, it just keeps happening? Clearly, whatever we're doing to solve this problem is not working. Well, so yes, it just keeps happening. But partly the reason that it just keeps happening is because there are so many private sector entities that are big enough or international enough to to create an impact when their operations are interrupted by ransomware, but not big enough or important enough to qualify as critical infrastructure. I mean, a beef company is not critical infrastructure. And so even if we had a very robust critical infrastructure protection program, I'm not sure it would apply to a Brazil-based beef multinational. It, you know, even if we had a food security program, it wouldn't apply to a Brazil-based beef multinational. So I, I'm not sure that this is so much a policy question in that sense. I do think, though, that it, it's worth thinking about who is targeting these companies? Why are they targeting these kinds of companies? And what sorts of policies could deter this? I mean, it, it feels a little bit to me like the raft of piracy that we saw around the Horn of Africa you yes. know, 15 years or so ago, right? Where all of a sudden we, we saw these container ships being taken over and ransomed. They were being ransomed. And it did cause supply chain disruptions and it cost a lot of money for a lot of industries. And lo and behold, an international maritime coalition was formed to do anti-piracy operations around the horn. It even includes China and it's quite successful. They also put guns on the ships. And Tom Hanks got a movie out of it. So, you know, <laughs> it, it all worked out okay. I So it seems to me that the equivalent of putting guns on the ships here is basically uh, what a lot of cybersecurity experts are banging on about today, which is dealing with the problem of cryptocurrency, because all these guys are getting paid in cryptocurrency, and that is why they cannot be traced and shut down more easily. If they had to get paid in some other manner, it would be much easier for national governments and international law enforcement cooperation 
to catch them and shut them down. So that, that to me is sort of an obvious target for policy, but it, it's not an easy target for policy. And I'd love Ben's thoughts and your thoughts on what, if anything, we can do about cryptocurrency. But I think the other thing here is, you know, syndicates keep doing this because it's profitable and it's profitable because most victims pay something even if they don't pay the initial demand. And so for every one of these companies that, you know, it causes enough of a fuss that we hear about it, there are probably dozens and dozens of companies that are getting ransom weird and paying. And somehow we have to tackle that side of it too, so that it's just not profitable anymore. Can I ask a question to Ben too, maybe, and Ben, because I know you want to say this, but I, I may have phrased this in a previous discussion about colonial, but I'll pose it more as a provocation. And I want to preface this by saying I'm not advocating for this, but I think it's an obvious question. You know, there are other industries where hostage taking and ransom paying, you know, are perpetuated because, you know, it, it pays, right? Uh, you know, the Somali pirates example is one, executives being taken hostage in Latin America and insurance companies paying ransom for them is another. What strikes me as maybe a little bit different about the hacker paradigm is that these are not violent criminals, right? They're not drug dealers. They're not physically taking human beings hostage. They're not pirates. Would it help deter this activity if the United States government and its partners brought their resources onto finding these people who were attacking critical infrastructure and more or less treating them like the way we treat terrorists, which is to say, we will hunt you down, we will arrest you, and if we can't arrest you or your host country won't do anything to turn you over, we will kill you. So the short answer to that question is, barring the last part of it, that kind of is our policy. Um, we bring a lot of ransomware cases. And the reason it doesn't work is that they have the protectia of the Russian government, by and large. And this is why people like Dmitry Alperovitch, co-founder of CrowdStrike, always likes to say, we don't have a ransomware problem, we have a Russia problem. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I agree with that a lot. I uh, although he was on NPR this morning saying, deal with cryptocurrency. Yes. Well, so <laughs> I, I agree. Like he and Nick Weaver, Nick Weaver in particular has been arguing uh, that this is fundamentally a cryptocurrency issue. And I agree with that. And Nick wrote this at some length on Lawfare recently. And I refer people to that. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. But fundamentally, the problem here is this: these gangs are not operating out of China. They're not operating out of Australia. They're operating out of Russia and uh, certain sectors in Eastern Europe. And that's because they are tolerated there. And so I think, you know, the fundamental problem here is that when Joe Biden goes to talk to Vladimir Putin, the costs that he will exact for this from the Russian state is not adequate to cause them to change their policy of permitting this. And they permit this both because it's a indigenous industry that, you know, brings wealth into Russia and because the same people who do this get recruited by the state to do offensive hacking on behalf of the state. And so until you change the Russian political calculation about this and the North Korean political calculation about this, you're not going to deal with the problem. And that said, the cryptocurrency side is very real too. 
Yeah, I mean, query, you know, in the panoply of issues between the United States and Russia, where this fits and, you know, what, what, if anything, might the U.S. government be willing to trade off in favor of Russian action on this? Well, I would argue that this should be pretty high on the U.S.-Russia agenda because to argue otherwise is to allow that the Russian government should be able to tax U.S. industry. And I do not accept that. Okay, so I, I guess my point would be, why is this a U.S. problem? This is an international problem. These A lot of these are not American companies. These are multinational companies or they're companies based in other countries. Why isn't this a sort of coalition of countries going to Russia and saying, if you don't shut this stuff down in your country, we won't allow Russian investment in our country? So I totally buy that you you know, need partners in these endeavors. And I would be very happy to see an international gang up on Russia on ransomware stuff happen. I do think it needs to be, unless we want to accept that criminal gangs, you know, acting with the tolerance of Vladimir Putin get to tax the U.S. economy on an ongoing basis, I think we have to deal with it. I feel like this is something that could be discussed in Geneva. Oh, yeah, or Vienna in a in a really nice hotel. I mean, at, at the summit in Geneva. That they're very unhelpfully having on a Wednesday. Oh, oh, that's some in Geneva. Yes, yes, indeed. I should also point out for those of you who are who are interested in delving more into the whole ransomware industry and the parallels with piracy and the parallels with the corporate kidnapping of the 1970s. There's a great New Yorker article on this subject out this week called The Go-Between. Uh, about a tech dude who negotiates with uh, ransomware syndicates Mm. on behalf of companies. So check it out. Cool. Uh, Well, that teases up very nicely to object lessons. And that was not my object lesson. That was a bonus. See, this has been been a great week already. I'm going to go first because as with last week, I have not shared in advance what my object lesson is. And last week, I stole Ben's. (laughs) <laughs> up from under him. You're not going to this week. I don't know. Mine's pretty good. And it sounds like something you might actually point out. <laughs> it may be too late for you, but you might try, if you can, to enroll immediately at the University of Virginia's law school because one Robert Swan Muller III, class of 73, will be participating in a UVA law school course taking students inside the investigation that dominated headlines during the Trump administration. Really? Yes, I'm reading here from a press release. Yeah. So Aaron Zebley, class of 96, and two other former senior members of Mueller's team, Zebley is teaching this course, will give an inside look at the role of special counsel. So I'm just wondering how many Washington Post reporters are today trying to sign up to audit at UVA (laughs) Law School. (laughs) I mean, like, what? This is great. I mean, you could like, I mean, are they going to live stream this? Can we we tweet questions at Professor Mueller? I got to tell you, I promise the class will be good and totally on the straight arrow side of the line with no non-public information. (laughs) Well, then count me out. Jim Quarles, who was also senior counsel to Mueller, and Andrew Goldstein, who is senior assistant special counsel, will teach alongside Zebley. You guys, 
Oh, and Mueller will lead at least one class. He's only committed to one. Everybody will have to wear a blue shirt, uh, a white shirt. And you better be on time. God damn what it. What is the adjunct rate for teaching one session of one law school class at UVA if you're Bob Mueller? It's like $50. <laughs> wow. All right, Ben. Was that your object lesson? It was not. Oh, oh, damn. All right. Well, go ahead and tell us yours. So this weekend, I got a complaint from a rational security listener hmm. who said, I know you guys need to have ads because you need to fund lawfare and everything, mm -hmm. but I would pay money for a ad-free version of rational security. So I am here to announce that- Pay us because that's what you're listening to. That now you can. <laughs> if you click on the support our Patreon button, uh, which will be in the show notes of this here very- episode of, of Rational Security and future episodes of the Lawfare Podcast, you can sign up for our ad-free podcast, which will be available, both the Lawfare Podcast and Rational Security in one awesome feed for our Patreon supporters only. So your wish is our command. You can keep listening to it as it is with, you know, with the ads in there. Or you can become a Patreon supporter of Lawfare and lose all the goddamn ads. Just make them vanish like a puff of smoke. And that is your prerogative as a listener. Wait, I'm very confused. Since when do we have ads on this podcast? Since we switched over to Acast. So there's going to be an ad on this podcast? Oh, Acast puts ads on the podcast. Wow. Like it just drops them in there. I didn't even. Has this been happening for a while? Yes. Wow. In a few weeks. See, I don't actually go back and listen to the podcast because I was there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All this time, I didn't know. There you go. Pay money, lose ads, or just send us money. I guess it's the same yeah, thing. You Would you like to buy an ad? Call it a cast. <laughs> um, Tammy, what's your object? Okay. So we did not talk about it this week because the outcome is as yet uncertain. But alert listeners probably know that the Israeli political system is engaged in in intensive up to the very, very, very last minute coalition negotiations that may, just may, mean that Benjamin Netanyahu will not be prime minister of Israel next week. So as we record, we are literally like three hours away from the deadline. There are a lot of little disputes among the many fractious parties in the alternative to Netanyahu coalition, the so-called change coalition. But one of the parties whose votes are crucial is the Ra'am party, which is a small party that is the party of the Islamic movement of Israel. So in its negotiations with its other coalition partners, who gets to decide if the Ra'am party will support a given compromise or not? Well, as a good Islamic Islamist movement, the Shura Council gets to decide. And so I, I just want to point out uh, to listeners the realization articulated by the wonderful Israeli journalist Anshul Pfeffer today that if this coalition government goes through, it will be the first time that the formation of a new Israeli government has hinged on the ruling of a Shura council, an Islamic religious council of sages, so to speak. 
that is new for Israel. It would be a novelty for a lot of countries in the region, in fact. Uh, and uh, it's one of the bizarre ironies of Israel's very multi, multi-party democracy. What a world we are living in. What a time. And check back next week to see if it mattered or not. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be sucked into more stories we've been talking about. We don't do news anymore. We do updates. Yeah, seriously. Ay, ay, ay. Well, that brings us up to date and to the end of this podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You could find what kind of merchandise could we sell this week? Maybe we could sell. Sure, a council thumbs up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thumbs up coins. Yeah. Rational Security. Shura Council thumbs up. I like Do you that. want us to have a Shura Council for the podcast? <laughs> Shura Council memberships. You could sure. on our Patreon yeah. page. <laughs> you could find them there. You can tweet us at RATL Security. You can, of course, find us on Facebook, still on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review and share. Share the podcast with your friends. Share it with your local Shura Council. Share it with ransomware hackers you might know they all need something to listen to while they're you know blackmailing the beef industry right go ahead push it out while the steak is sizzling in the background Indeed. and the sure council is voting raise the stakes what music is playing oh i don't know we're gonna get there though our audio engineer this week was ian n Wright. our show is produced and edited by jen patya howell the music in the background that you're hearing is from joe biden uh, and his new very timely tribute band beyond meatloaf Excellent. Uh, uh, that does not sound appetizing. Beyond Meat is actually really good. I like Beyond Meat. It's pretty good, but you know Joe Biden listens to some meatloaf. You know I, he, you know that man yeah. listens to meatloaf while he's like washing a Camaro in his shorts. For sure. And you also know that man eats real meat, not Beyond Meat. Uh, you know what? Joe Biden is going to send some drones down to get these SOBs because he will not be denied his steak, and he actually and wants to eat it while he's listening to the dulcet tones of one Sophia Yang. <laughs> On behalf of my good friend Benjamin Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and thanks again to our special guest, Madiha Afsal, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.